my family and I are leaving for a trip uh, this evening, and I'm reminded by my kids' constant questions of when are we leaving, when are we going, when are we leaving, and then looking forward to the questions of once we get in the car, are we there yet, how long, and all of that, that you all, I'm sure, know so well. But I'm reminded by that, and, and back to whenever we were children, and how slow things seemed to come. Remember that? As kids, it seemed like you were never going to get there, right? Never going to get to your birthday, right? Never going to get to that trip. Never going to get to that thing. Never going to get to be a teenager. I don't know why anybody would desire that, but, right? Never going to get to junior high. Never going to get to high school. Never going to get to sweet 16, right? Never, and then I'll never be 18. I don't know when I'm going to be 21. I could finally be an adult. When am I going to get married? And you just remember that perspective of like, it's going to take forever. And it seems to take forever from that perspective. And then something tends to shift somewhere on the other side of that 21 or so, doesn't it? To where we're no longer just like wondering when are these things ever going to come. Instead, somewhere on the other side of that, we start begin, we begin to ask questions like, how on earth is this already here? Right? Like, how on earth have we already been married 11 years? How on earth do we already have four kids? How on earth has this already happened? And, and so there's this shift that happens in perspective. And life kind of takes over in a way, once we, whatever that threshold is, and and um, instead of just wondering when is this going to happen and when are we going to get there, we, we tend to fall into more kind of this, these existential questions of like, okay, how, how did I get here so fast? And what, what has this all been about? What have I accomplished? What am I, what am I here for? Right? What, we, we tend to start asking bigger questions about what, what does this all mean? Why, why, you know, why, why am I even here? And sometimes that's darker than others, and sometimes it's just this kind of nagging thing in, in the you know, back of our minds. And sometimes that's brought on by a crisis right, or an event. Sometimes we have kids. I've joked about that before. And you're like, oh, boy, I'm responsible for another human being. Like, so some of y'all, that's why you came back to church. right? <laughs> like, y'all got to help me with this. I don't, like, I don't know what to do. Um, or sometimes it's the death of a loved one or um, just a moment, right, where you hit rock bottom. Whatever that is, whenever that is, it, it kind of pushes us into this deeper question of, okay, what, what is this all about? And in our story today, we see that uh, the characters have gone through that kind of transition, that God has used actually a crisis to sober them up into a reality of, oh, yeah, my life has a purpose and I have a reason for existing. So if you haven't been with us, we are in a series on the book of Esther, which is a unique book in the Bible. It is really just, it's a story, um, and it's a story about a particular time in history, um, a time whenever uh, a guy you may have heard of in history uh, named Xerxes is ruling over the Persian Empire, which is most of the known world, um, really, except for Greece, and he tried to try to get them. That didn't go well. You can read about that in history, but uh, this guy is a big deal, rules over um, just like a huge mass of land, most of the known world at that time, like 127 provinces, and it's really the, the greatest kingdom that up to that point has been known, and he is a big deal, right? Especially in his own eyes, but really, period, he is a big deal. He sits on a huge throne over and above his people, and he, when he speaks, he speaks with, uh, the, he thinks that the son is speaking through him, and people, have, he has such an authority, and whatever he says is final. There's no arguing about it. You can't come into his presence without having permission, and so this guy is a, is a big, big deal. So uh, this story takes place in that time in actual history, the Bible's not just written in, you know, off in some vacuum and, you know, like mythology, like this happened. No, this is actually in a moment in history, um, in a line with what you read in 
uh, history books, this guy named Xerxes, and what, what's happening and the reason it's in the Bible is that there's that going on in the Persian Empire, but then you have God's people and a few of, uh, some of God's people that uh, had been in captivity, right? God had promised to give them uh, promised land. He had done that. He gave them this covenant. Hey, live by this. It's going to go really well. And if, and, uh, and if you don't, though, if you walk away from me, if you, if you uh, kind of commit adultery with other gods is the way that he would put it, he said, then I'm going to have to... I'll punish you like, because you're my children. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to discipline you, and, and I need to teach you a lesson that you, hey, I, I, put this, I put life before you, and I put death before you. If you choose life, things are going to go really well. If you choose death, then there's going to be consequences. And so consequences came, and God's people were taken over by Babylon, and then uh, they were in captivity to, to that empire for a long time, and then Babylon was overtaken by Persia, and then uh, fast forward a little bit, and this guy we we're talking about, Xerxes, takes over. But what we have is God's people, they're no longer in captivity. They've actually been freed to go back home, back to Jerusalem, where God's presence dwelt, where God was doing his work in and amongst the nations to, to be a place where uh, his presence was there, his people were there, and, and things would go in such a way that they would bring glory to him as the only true God in the world. And so they're freed to go back there, but many of them don't. In fact, many of them go the other direction and pursue a more comfortable and prosperous life in the capital city of Susa, uh, the capital city of, of Persia. So instead of going back to where God's presence is, again, I always remind her that this is not like our day where God's presence is wherever you are, right? The Holy Spirit dwells within us, and that's a truth that we take for granted way too often, right? In this day, like, sin hadn't been atoned for. People couldn't just have fellowship with God in that way. And so he was literally, his presence dwelt in the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem, Okay? And so they had to come there to, to worship him and be a part of his people. So you have these people that choose not to do that. Instead, they find themselves mixed up in this empire of Persia. And really, we find that they're fully assimilated into the culture. They don't seem to be keeping God's fast. They're not praying to him. They're doing everything that everybody else is doing. But they're still you know, Jewish by heritage or by, uh, you know, by ethnicity, but not really by how they live their life. So that's where we find themselves, ourselves in the story. And there's a lot of drama that's already happened. I can't catch up on all of it. But one of the things that happened is a couple of these people, a couple of God's people, the Jews that aren't supposed to be there but are, they get caught up in this king's crazy, you know, bachelor-like contest where he brings a bunch of women to his castle, picks his favorite one, and makes her queen. And through that story, this orphan girl named Esther ends up the queen of Persia. Now, a lot of people want to celebrate that and talk about, like, there's, there's, not a lot to, there's not anything to celebrate that more. She shouldn't have been there. We talked about that in earlier sermons, right? Her, her adopted dad should have stood up and said, you're not taking her. She should have stood up and said, I'm not doing this. I'm not going through this process, and yet she hasn't. And so up to this point, we haven't seen uh, noble, godlike activity out of these two characters. Instead, we've seen full assimilation from them, and, and really you can't tell them apart from the rest of the culture. And now something drastic has happened, though. Because now a decree has been made by the king that all Jews are to be basically subjected to genocide and will be killed. Like everybody. Men, women, children, Jews are going to be, every Jew in the kingdom of Persia is going to be murdered. And Esther has not told her husband, the king, that she's a Jew. And so there's this tension of all, not only is, you know, her and her uncle in danger, but the whole people are now, the fate of them rests on their, soldier, on their shoulders. And we looked at last week that the, that the story has pivoted now. So they, they seem to begin to uh, re- live a life, what we think is of repentance, where they start now not just living for themselves, but looking toward God. And we see Mordecai, her uncle, in sackcloth and ashes. And so all that has led up to this point 
where Mordecai has told Esther, say, hey, you've got to, like, you've got to go and tell the king that he can't do this. You've got to go and put a stop to this decree or we're all literally going to die. And she says, listen, I can't go before the king. Like, I haven't been invited. I, he hasn't invited me into his presence in 30 days. If I just show up there uninvited, he's not happy about that. I'll, I'll die. Like, so our chances just go to nothing then. And he says, well, you, you got to do this. Like, and he says this line, perhaps you've been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. So this is the, the, the turning point in the story. And we see that Esther now begins to live her life not in a passive, whatever happens, happens kind of way, right? Because that's what we've seen up to this point. She's just kind of gone with whatever's brought before her, and she shows some noble qualities. She's likable and all that, but she's just kind of gone with the flow and not stood up, for, stood up against evil or for what's right. And now at this point, she's gonna, that's going to change. And here's what I would subject to you. All of us, whether it's been now or uh, in the past, we've all had those moments where we begin to look back and go, Man, what am I doing here? Esther's been on the throne now for, for five years. She's been the queen for five years, and this moment happens. And, and I got to think that she's wondered, like, man, what is this? What is this life? I don't even get to see my husband most of the time. I don't, she probably doesn't like him. Yeah, she has riches, but, man, there's got to be this emptiness. And so um, all of us struggle with this question of purpose. What do I do? Why am I here? All of those things. And so... I think we're going we're gonna to look at today's story through that lens of what does it mean to live with purpose? What does it mean to live in such a way that we know that God has called us and is going to use us for his glory and to his mission, to his namesake? And so um, what we find is we pick ourselves up and we're going to read through that story that, that Jenna kind of read the bookends for us on. But we're going um, to pick ourselves up in chapter 4, verse 14. And, and this is Mordecai speaking to Esther and saying, hey, if you keep silent at this time, God will, will take care of his business. He says, relief and deliverance will, will raise for the Jews um, from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. He says, listen, God's going to accomplish his purposes, but if, if you don't step up, like you're going to perish and I'm going to perish. And so here, here's, here's this, uh, this moment for us. And I, I think there's been a lot of literature written, a lot of ink spilled about purpose, right? Even outside of the Christian world, like, uh, there's a lot. That everybody's longing for, what, why am I here? What is this about? And there's been a lot of books written and a lot of self-help and a lot of uh, conversations had about how do we find purpose in this life. And I would su- subject to you, as Esther, as a case study, is kind of looking at her life, kind of passively floating through it up to now, and this turning point that happens, we're going to look in and, and let her life kind of speak into what does it look like for us to gain purpose in God's grand picture of things. And so uh, the first point we see is actually uh, just that, to start with God, right? So oftentimes when we want to know our purpose, we want to look in at ourselves. We want to say, okay, what, what do I um, want to accomplish? What do I dream about? What will fulfill me? What... Um, you know, we start to ask questions like that, but we see here in, in Esther that when this crisis, this reality is brought on her and she realizes, oh, I've got to do something, the first thing that they do, first thing that Mordecai brings her attention to is, hey, we've not been living by this standard, but God has a purpose. You see that in verse 14. In a book where God's name is not mentioned, it makes you, Esther a really unique book, this is one of the most clear um, 
references to their faith in God that has now come back up and really to God's purposes. And so you see in verse 14, he says, if we keep silent, like relief and deliverance will come from somewhere else. What he's saying there is, listen, God's made a covenant with these people. God's going to accomplish his purposes, period. Like whether we're a part of it or not, he's going to do his thing. Um, really the question becomes, do we want to play a role? Do we want God to accomplish his purposes through us? Or do we want God to accomplish his purposes in spite of us? And that's the question that's kind of put before Esther in this moment. But you notice they start with God, not, not me and what do I want to do, right? But, but instead with God. And so um, really, again, this is, this, is, um, this is truth for all of us. Right, so often we want to start with ourselves, but um, the best-selling book, I think one of the best-selling books ever uh, by Rick Warren, The Purpose Driven Life, starts out, page one, first words on the page about the purpose-driven life is, it's not about you. So he starts the book. And he begins to build out this whole case of like, we were made not to just turn inward and get all that we can out of our life. In fact, Martin Luther would describe sin in that very way. He would say that sin is, is the self turning in on itself and, and making ourselves the purpose of our life. You, really, um, you, you see this from the very beginning in Genesis 3. God makes uh, man and woman for, in his image to, pro, uh, to project his image to the world for his glory. And what, is, what does Satan do from the very beginning? He begins, begins to twist that, right, and to convince them that it's not really about God. God's holding out on you, and if you get that fruit, then it'll be about you, and you will have the power that God has. You'll have the same um, level of knowledge and glory that God has. And so that's the, from the very beginning, what goes wrong, and it's what's perpetuated throughout all of our lives, really, uh, ever since in history, is this, this lie that life is about us. And that sounds negative, right? Like, I didn't come to church to hear life's not about me. Well, it's actually good news. Like you, you just use some case studies from the culture whenever you, you see people trying to pursue their own agendas. And a lot of times, some people get them, right? They actually accomplish what they hope to accomplish. You see athletes and celebrities, and they actually get the millions. They get the approval and the, the praise of the masses. They get the awards. They get the championships. And then you see them reflecting back on their lives as empty. You've seen this as explicitly... Um, Stated by guys like Tom Brady after winning championships going, why do, I, like, why do I still feel like there's something more? You see this from guys like Kevin Durant that get the championship and then actually turn even more bitter and, and seem to be even more empty inside because what they thought would fulfill them ends up being empty. And so this has been the, the ploy of the enemy from the very beginning where he convinced us that life's really about getting what we can for ourselves instead of finding fulfillment joy, and purpose in the living God. And so Martin Luther says that sin is the self being bent in or curved in on itself. Instead of being aimed at uh, our image, uh, the one who, in whose image we've made, we've, we've bent our purpose back in on ourself, and that corrupts all that we do in our life. And so to, to get that straightened out, to get purpose back in our life, we have to start with God. And so we see that that's where, that's where Mordecai directs his attention. He says, listen, God's got a purpose here. Do we want to be a part of it or not? And, and, he's, and that's when he says, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther t- said to Mordecai, okay, go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. What's that about? That's, that's God's people looking to God for answers, denying themselves of something that they, they, they you know, are used to having in food and saying, instead of eating, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, 
cry out to my God and plead with him for help. And so for three days, everybody that they can gather up is going to fast. Esther and her people are going to fast. They're looking to God. They're starting their search for purpose. And what do I do with this life? What do, how do I get out of this mess? Not by looking at the circumstances, but, but looking to God. Again, Rick Warren's book, It's Not About You, that we kind of chuckle at that. That's what we're constantly trying to teach our kids, right? Or at least I, I hope, to some degree, teaching them that the world doesn't revolve around them. Because if you don't, somebody will. Like at some point, they're going to learn that lesson. Kinder coming from you. We teach that to them, but then we live our own lives as though it kind of does, right? And so I would submit to you, like we, we must look to our God first and foremost, and let this reality settle in. Reality has been brought to Esther and Mordecai. Their, their names are on the chopping block. Their people are going to be murdered. So reality has sobered them up. The scales have been removed. There's no longer any confusion about what's going on. They, right now, they know what's at stake. And in this moment, they have to look to God and say, okay, what, what, do, we, what do we do from here? And so I want us to stop and think about this. Like most of us here would probably claim to be Christians. I want you to think about what does that mean? Like when we, we are claiming Christianity, that Jesus is the son of God, that he came, that he was on Christmas. We celebrate that he was born of a virgin. Do we believe this stuff, right? That he lived a sinless life, actually did not commit a sin. Then he died an undeserved death on the cross so that sinners like you and I could be saved from hell and reunited with God now and forever in heaven. Do we believe that? Do we believe that that's the, the, the foundational truth about our life? Because if we do, if we do, then it changes everything. See, we're, we're, we're raised in this culture where most of our you know, families, somebody in our family went to church probably, right? If you're raised here in Illinois and, and, and you were probably taken to church at some point. And so Christianity is not this... Uh, massive paradigm shift for most of us. It's the, it's the values and the culture that we were raised in, and we kind of decide, okay, to what degree am I going to be involved? But we, we, we do it a disservice. We kind of take it all for granted when we don't think about the reality that's put before us is no less dramatic than what Esther and Mordecai are dealing with here in this moment. Because the reality that's put before us by the gospel is that we are all sinners who have rebelled against the living God and are on our way to hell unless he intervenes. That's the reality that's put before us, is that we're all headed toward a cliff that we can't escape because we've earned it by our own sin. Death is what we've earned. The wages of sin is death. We have rebelled against God, and what do we get for that? We deserve death. And that is the reality of all who don't surrender their lives and cry out to, to Jesus as Lord. And so that, that is what lays before us as the most true thing that the Bible presents. And if that is true, then it changes everything. I'm reminded of the C.S. Lewis quote that says this, if Christianity, Christianity says, if false is of no importance. Listen, he said, if it's, if it's not true, it's of no importance. If it, and if it's true, it's of infinite importance. Listen to this. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. What he's saying is, either this thing is everything or it's nothing, but it can't just be like, eh. It, it can't be. It doesn't make sense. Like, if we're intellectually honest with what we're saying we believe, then this can't just be something that we sort of add to our life and our agenda, 
right? And we, we're still pursuing us and what we hope, and, but we're just going to use God, you know, as a, as a safety net. But we're also going to kind of ask him, and maybe we can earn some favor. Maybe he can help us along the way of our pursuit and our purpose, right? But we, the, the, all of that flies in the face of what this is saying, that indeed, if the gospel is true, if what we're saying about Christ is true, then it's, it's not just something we kind of add to our life and move on. Instead, it's something that changes everything. So we have to ask ourselves, do I really believe this? If we want to find purpose in our life, we have to start here and say, do I really believe this? Don't start your journey for purpose by looking at yourself. Start by looking at God. So after the reality of who God is and what's going on in history and what God's been doing and where they are in this moment, we see Esther concedes to the reality that God wants to use her and that she doesn't just get to sit idly by. And so in verse 16, we see her shift and begin to take action. And she surrenders her life. That's really the, she, she begins to just say, okay, okay, Lord, I, I, I can't go on with life as usual. Like, this is not just no big deal. I, this is the reality before me, and I'm going to su- surrender my life unto this purpose. And again, as I said, sometimes crisis, sometimes events, sometimes births, sometimes deaths bring this reality to us. But oftentimes, man, we're just so busy living our lives that we don't stop to think about what's actually happening in our own life and in the grander story of God's purposes throughout history. Martin Luther put it this way. He says, we are often like a man who, joining himself to a builder and marveling at, at the cutting and the hewing and the measuring of the wood and the beams, uh, is foolishly content and quiet among these things without concern as to what the builder finally intends to make by all of these exertions. What he's saying is we just get caught up living our life. What's God doing? Am I going to get this job? Am I going to, how are my kids going to turn out? What is, what's right in front of me? Will we get to this place? Will we be able to buy this house? Will we be able to do this? Will we, how long will we stay in Illinois? How long will we, you know, do these, like all of these questions, and we're just looking at what's right in front of us, what's right in front of us, and we just, we're always looking at what God is doing in our life, but he says we're like a builder that's just amazed at all that God's doing in this, this building, and we never stop to ask, hey, what are you building here? What's your big, like, what's the end of all this? And we miss out when we do that, right? When we don't step back and go, okay, what's the grand scheme of God's plan? Then we miss out and we start to uh, lose perspective. And that's when we start to ask some really bad questions about where is God and how, how could you, how dare you? When we're, we're just looking in on our life, right, and what's right in front of us, we, we ask some really bad questions and come to some really bad conclusions about what God is doing in the world because all we see is our world. And so we see that in this moment, Esther and Mordecai are sobered back into the reality that, oh yeah, God is doing something in history and he's promised to do something in his people. And that promise is is threatened by this king who thinks he has the power. And we know that God's going to do something. He'll handle his business. But do we want to be a part of that? And which side of that do we want to be on? That's really the question that, that they're brought in. So the second thing we have to do is we have to start with God. And once we realize that reality, we have to surrender ourselves to the fact that he actually wants to use us. You see, God's people in this day had kind of misunderstood. We talked about last week. They misunderstood what it meant to follow him and be his people. Right? I think they, they think it's mostly about a list of rules that they got to follow, right? Okay, to be God's people, you got to do this. You got to be circumcised when you're born. You got to follow these commandments and, you know, go to these festivals. And so they kind of think, well, we can do that, like, anywhere, right? We don't have to go to Jerusalem to do that. We can be a good person, and we're 
better than most of these other people. Like, I don't have to get that serious about God's commands and what he's called us to do. Because I can, I can keep most of those things, and I'm better than most of those people, and I can do my thing, and, and we'll be all right. Me and God will be, will, be, will be cool, right? We kind of misunderstand thinking that the call to follow him, the call to be a part of God's people, is just about keeping this list of rules. And, and that's such a secondary part of it, right? It's not even the main part of, of God's call and his invitation in the Old Testament, his invitation to be his people. It's about being his people, right? It's about, I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I'll provide for you. I'll protect you. We'll do this thing together, and there'll be a rich fellowship that will bring glory to my name and joy to your hearts as the whole world looks in and sees, wow, that's, that's what life's supposed to be like. And the same is true of Jesus when he comes in and he's inviting us to follow him. Again, we translate that to, okay, well, if I'm going to be a Christian, that means I'm going to follow Jesus, and that means i got to do these things, right? And that we, we, trans, we, go to, we go to that so fast. It means i got to do, i got to follow these list of rules. And it's really actually about what we're not supposed to do really often, right? That we reduce Christianity to, okay, these are the list of rules that I can't do now if I'm going to follow God. But the, the, the very language that Jesus uses is not about you know, accepting these list of rules to live our life by. It's actually to follow him. That means he's going somewhere. He's doing something in the world, and and he's inviting us to be a part of it. That's what we miss so often in our search for purpose is we're just looking at our own lives. We need to step back and go, oh, yeah, yeah, this whole world, it's a broken mess, marred by sin. It's not what God meant for it to be. There's there's specks of glory. There's goodness here, and there's there's goodness there, but it's all marred and distorted by our own sin. But the good news is that God hasn't just conceded to that. Right? He hasn't just said, well, you know, it didn't turn out like I wanted. No, he's, he's intervened. He stepped into our mess. And Jesus says, I'm making all things new. I'm going to reconcile this broken world unto myself. And he sends us all. He calls us not just to follow this list of rules and receive our forgiveness. And, okay, you know, I'll see you in heaven. I'll, I'll, I'll see you at church a few times. And then ultimately we'll go to heaven together. Like, that's what we've reduced the gospel to so often is, okay, I'll get forgiven. These are the things I can't do anymore if I want to stay on good terms with God, and then I'll get to go to heaven when I die. Otherwise, kind of back to my life, right? Back to the things I was doing, back to the life I was living. And Jesus is saying, no, no, you're missing it. You're missing it. Come follow me. I'm going somewhere. I'm doing something, and I want you to be a part of it. Listen, this is good news. There's so much more to life than just punching the clock, going through the motions, and then, you know, our time comes up and it's over. We have to surrender to the fact that he actually wants to use us. <clears throat> but how? How? Well, believe it or not, he actually wants us to make plans. He actually wants us to make plans. So often, we'll, we'll preach a sermon, we'll do this, and we'll say, God wants to use you. He has a purpose for your life. And sometimes we'll run to the altar and make this declaration, God, use me however you want. I want to be used. I want to be used by you. I want to surrender my life to you. And then we get up off our knees, and we go back to our life, and we just kind of wait. And if God doesn't do something dramatic, then we're just like, well, I mean, I prayed this prayer once, and he didn't really seem to do anything, so I'm just kind of doing life again. And, and, and listen, here, <clears throat> I think... The book of Esther provides some real valuable insight in how we get from this reality of, okay, God has a purpose for me. I'm not an accident. He is doing something. He wants me to be a part of it. How do we get from there to actually being a part of it? And, and I think he wants us to make plans. He wants us to engage with him and be intentional. And, it's, and we kind of over-romanticize this moment and think it's going to be this huge calling, right? And we, Lord, am I called? And we're, we're asking, well, am I called? Do you, really, you want me to be a missionary God? you want me to go overseas? you, you want me to be in ministry? Um, you want me to adopt a kid? You want me to, you know, maybe sing in the worship band? No? Okay, so I'll just go, like, I'll just go back to life as usual, right? That's kind of our paradigm oftentimes. 
He's saying, no, 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 I want you to examine what's, al- like, what's already happened in your life and what's already before you, and I'm going to use that. That's where the action happens. It's not about God calling a bunch of good preachers to preach good sermons to entertain crowds of people. The real ministry of the church happens whenever you all, the people of God, go out into the world and Jesus says, hey, go make disciples as you go. It doesn't mean, hey, all of you become disciple makers, which means you're going to be a preacher or a missionary. No, no, no. He's saying, hey, as you, when you work your job, when you go to school, when you talk to your neighbors, as you're doing all of that that life just requires, you make disciples. Live your life in such a way that brings glory to God, and you, you, you point to him, you tell people about it. Like, that's when the real ministry of the church, that's when the gates of hell are really on their heels. That's when the darkness is really pushed back. Not when I preach better sermons, right? No, it's whenever you, the people of God, take it outside the doors and you scatter. And as you go, you make disciples and push back the darkness and bring glory to God in this world. That's, and so you need to start looking at, okay, what, what is my life? Like, what, how does God want to use me? And listen, you're going to have a lot of reasons to think that he won't. And you're going to think, well, I mean, of course he wanted to use Esther, right? Like, she's become the queen of Persia. I mean, this story's pretty epic. Like, there's an obvious need. Like, obviously God was writing her into this story for such a time as this, and this is a really cool thing. Wasn't it great that God thought of that, and he didn't get caught off guard, and, you know, all his people didn't get killed? And we, we kind of think, over-romanticize this and think, oh, man, Esther, what a, what a hero, right? But it is not too dramatic to say that for each and every one of us, we were born for such a time as this. Acts 17.26 says that, that God has, has put every man in its place, every, from every nation of my, mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. What he's saying is, you're not here by accident. He put you here in this place in 2019, living where you live, in the house, in the neighborhood you live in, in the job that you work, with the kids that you have, and the friends that they know, and the sports that they play, and the place you like to recreate, the gym you work out at, and on and on and on, your favorite restaurant, and on and on it goes. He's done all of that on purpose. On purpose, he's put you where you are. In the time that you are. It's not an accident. And he wants to use you. It's incredible. We, we, we think, oh, Esther, right? No. God wants all of us to look and go, okay, Lord, how, how, would you, how do you want to use me? And sometimes it's a big thing. Like there are those of you that are out there that have dreams in your heart that you have like dismissed and pushed aside for years thinking, well, I just couldn't. All right, that's not realistic or not now or I'm not quite. And you've just kind of pushed that aside because you know, God's called you to do some really incredible things. And I don't know what that is, but you've, you've, you've kind of pushed that dream aside and said, no, that can't be. And there's other of you, I have no idea. And I would just say to you, listen to Esther's story. She has a lot of reasons to say that I can't do anything about this. She already said earlier, hey, King hasn't called me in 30 days. I've not been into his room. He's kind of over Esther is what it seems like. Right? He's got a whole harem of, of women. He can call whichever one he wants, a different one every night. And, and Esther's not made that list in 30 days. So she's going, hey, I'm not even liked by him anymore. She's got other reasons, right? She could say, well, I'm an orphan, right? I, I'm just, I'm a nobody. My life's a mess. Honestly, she could look at her own sin and go, I'm an adulterer. I failed to follow God's commands, and I made a mess of my life. I'm not supposed to be here. I'm not supposed to be the queen. Right? She, could, she could start to list off all the reasons why she shouldn't and why God can't, right? You, have you been there? You had those moments in your life of why you can't and what, what your story is and why you're, you've been written off? Right? Have you had those moments for you? 
All of us have those lists of why we can't. Moses said, Lord, I can't talk. Right? He said, I I got that. Don't worry about it. And on and on again, we have in the stories of the scripture, God using ordinary, and not just ordinary, but broken people in extraordinary ways for his glory. These aren't heroes. These are ordinary people that are broken and sinful and just as disqualified as you and I, and yet God chooses to use them in incredible ways. So don't count yourself out. Don't just make an emotional, you know, run to the Lord and then see what he does. Instead, start leaning into how he wants to use you. Make some plans. Because Esther's got a lot of reasons why God can't use her, but what, what's she going to do? How's this going to play out? Is she going to succumb to all of those why she can't, or is she actually going to take action? And if so, what's she going to do? Let's read, as we close, let's read 5, 1 through 8, and let's see what she does. She's going to look at not what she doesn't have and why God can't use her. Instead, she's going to start to look at what she does have. In verse 1 of chapter 5, um, <clears throat> on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. So remember, she can't just roll up into his presence without being invited. If he's not happy with that, He's seated on his throne, and he just doesn't make a move. Your head's getting lopped off. Like, that's just, that's just how this guy ran his kingdom. There's, there's the dude in the helmet with the big axe just waiting. And so she goes, and she makes this statement in her surrender. She says, I'm going to go before the king, and if I perish, I perish, but I can't sit idly by. So but she starts, she, I can't. But what she doesn't do is just make this irrational run into the presence of, the king, of, his, of her husband, right? And go, you fool, you're right. You're like, how could you be such an idiot? She doesn't do that. That's going to get, like, we know that uh, Xerxes doesn't like to be challenged in public, right? That's how he got rid of his last wife. She told him no in front of his friends. He said, okay, well, you are no longer the queen. I'm done with you. You're discarded. So we know that he doesn't like to be, uh, you know, humiliated in front of people. And so she's going to instead be wise and think it through. And she's going to go, okay, I, I know that he's not going to want to be, I'm going to honor him, all right? I'm not just going to run in and be irrational. She takes three days to prepare. She's fasting and she's praying. She's not just running in and going, okay, I'll do this. Like, she counts the cost. She thinks it through. You can't just say, I'm going to adopt a kid because God has called me into it. You need to count the cost. You need to think it through. And then you got to do a whole lot of paperwork, right? And wait like a year, right? We have some of our families. We're going to be sending off the Walters to China next week to get the, the kiddo that they've been waiting, that they've said yes to God. Like, so there, there's, there's a process, right? So she waits, she's intentional, she plans, and then she uses what she has. What does she have? Well, she has her beauty, right? She's pretty. She knows that. So she says, okay, I'm going I'm to use that. She has a wardrobe that y'all ladies would flip out about, right? Her closet is amazing. So she says, all right. He likes whenever I look good. I'm going to put on my robes. I'm going to dress up. I'm going to give myself every advantage whenever I come before him to save my people. I'm going to do everything I can. So she, puts, so she uses what she does have, right? And so she puts on her robes, and she comes and stands in front of the king's quarters while the king was seated on his royal throne inside the throne room, entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther, here's the moment, standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther, the golden scepter that was in his hand, which is a sign of, okay, you're, you're good. You can come in here. I, I, you know, permission to meet. You don't lose your head. Instead, you get to hang out. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? This shall be given to you. This is dramatic. Even to the half of my kingdom. It's just kind of a saying. Nobody's going to call him on that. He's just acting like he's really generous. I'll give you whatever you ask, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther says, if it please the king... Let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I've prepared for the king. 
this is curious, right? So you've risked your life to invite him to dinner? Like, if that's me, I'm cutting right to the chase, right? I don't do well at putting conflict off. I'm going to cut right to the chase and say, hey, I'm a Jew, forgot to tell you, you can't kill my people, right? And that may or may not go real well for him. He's always on his throne and he's always drinking, so you don't know what kind of Xerxes you're getting, right? So she says, hey, you know what? I know what this guy likes. He likes a party and he likes to eat. Listen, ladies, that ain't rocket science, is it? It's going to go better for you when you talk to your man about something if you give him a meal first, right? Right? He's just in a better mood. He says, hey, I want you to come to this dinner that I prepared for you. So, so what does she use? She uses her beauty. She uses her, her just wisdom. We see all throughout the book, she's smart. Like, she gets what people like. She's able to navigate things well socially. She uses her wisdom. She uses her wardrobe, and she uses her kitchen. She says, all right, I'm going to cook this dude a meal. Right? I'm going to give every, I'm going to make his favorite meal. I'm going to make things really good. Before I ask this, I'm going to butter him up. So she says, hey, if it please the king, let the king and Haman, this is the, the, the guy in the story that actually came up with this whole decree and got the Jews all on the chopping block. I'm going to come to this feast I prepared for you. The king says, well, bring, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast and Esther, that Esther had prepared, and they went, uh, and they were there drinking wine after the feast. And the king said to Esther, so what is your wish? Tell me, it shall be granted to you, even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. And then Esther answered, my wish and my request is this. If I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request and let the king and Haman come to the feast, I will prepare for them tomorrow, and I will do as the king said. So she says, hey, come to this dinner. All right, what's your request? Come to the dinner tomorrow, right? So, but listen, this, is, this sounds silly, and it's like, why is she doing that? But if you read the earlier parts of the book, these dudes love to party, They've already thrown like three, and they don't just throw like, you know, a Friday night bash and then clean it all up on Saturday morning. This guy's known to throw like six-month parties and invite the whole city, right? He's, he's, he, he lives his life to excess, right? And they, So they like parties, so she goes, okay, I'm not just going to throw one meal, right? I'm going I'm to drag this out, but I'm going to do this again, even better. Like, come again tomorrow night. And so she begins to leverage, and we'll have to see how the story plays out. But she is now living her life with intentionality and with purpose. And here's what I want to ask you. She uses what she has in that moment. And it's not this, she doesn't become this, you know, person. She doesn't really have the influence. She can't just walk up, like, yeah, she's queen, but she's not really a queen of influence. She can't just say what she wants and expect it to go, like, He can get rid of her. She's disposable. We've seen that from earlier parts of the story. And so she uses what she has and she leverages. So here's what I want to ask you. I want to ask you to consider how does God want to use you? What's he want to do with you? Again, I know that there's there's some of you that had these dreams, had this aspiration, this calling kind of welling up in you, and you've just shoved it down. Now you dismissed it for whatever reason. Some good, some bad reasons, but, but you've kind of dismissed it. I wanna, want you to start asking questions of what does it actually look like for God to use me? What do we have? What, what gifts and resources and opportunities are in front of us? That, that, how would God want to use our stories for his good? Let's, just, let's move beyond the, the inspiration and into actual planning to live our life on purpose. And what do we do? So I just want to submit this, this to you and say, okay, if you actually want to see the Lord doing something in and through your life, look to him first. Pray fast. Like it's not just a noble you know, thing that they did back in this. Like we still can fast and say, Lord, I want, 
I want to de- deny myself of things. I want to lean into my hunger for you, and I want you to reveal to me what you would have me do. What are the things about my life that I just take for granted but you actually want to use? And listen, that can be skills. That can be experiences. That can be resources. Some of you have uh, beautiful homes. Some of you have, uh, you know, uh, skills that you're able to, to weld. You're able to, um, you know, fill in the blank. Speak sign language. Speak Spanish. Like, what, Lord, what, what is it? Maybe you're really good at throwing parties. What would you have me do, Lord? How can you use me in the midst of this grand story that you're a part of? I want to tell you the story of a couple, a few people in our church, and one couple in particular. I won't say their name, but I want to give you just this example of what, um, how they've responded, and it just brings joy to my heart as, an, as just an illustration as we close. So you guys have heard us talk a lot about how God has called our church into orphan care uh, in the modern day, which has a lot to do with foster care and foreign adoption and both of those things. And, and you've heard us put that before you as the stats and God calling his people to take that burden on themselves. And, and many of you have responded and, and are in, in the process and are getting licensed and doing things. And many of you are joining teams that the Restore Network has. And so here, I just want to use an example of how it doesn't have to equal this grand you know, really noble thing, I'm doing this, or if I can't do that, then I can do nothing. I want to share with you just this couple that just said, you know what, we can't, we can't have kids in our house, right? Like, we can't foster, and we can't adopt. But we're all in, and we'll do whatever you need. And so there's this one couple, and there's really others, that they serve every month, sometimes twice a month, as the Restore Network brings in foster, kid, foster parents to train them on how to bring healing to, to the kids that are in their care, how to uh, invest in and bring healing into the trauma that's happened in these lives. And they just serve meals, and they, they watch kiddos, and they, they babysit, and they, they clean up the church tirelessly every time. They, they come and help us put on a back-to-school bash, and they, they tear down the church. They put it all together. They put all the food out. They clean it all up, and they're here for hours, and they just give and give and give. And no, they can't have a kid in their home right now, but, man, they're making such a huge difference just by saying, I'm willing. I, this is what I do have. I've got time, and I've got a servant's heart, and I could push a broom and... Scoop a spoon, right? And what glory, like what beauty that is whenever we lean into what God has for us. And some of you are on those teams and you're doing the same thing and you're just saying, okay, Lord, what, how, how would you use me in this life and in this moment to make a difference? Maybe I, and we just disqualify ourselves because we can't do these big things. Just, he's saying, hey, no, no, no. I took an orphan Jewish girl. I put her on the throne so that she could Help preserve my people from the decree of a psychopath. Your story ain't nothing. Like, whatever you've been through, whatever you got going on, specialize in redemption. Specialize in taking people who are broken and giving them purpose and, and making a huge difference. And, and listen, we, we think, well, okay, but how's that? We don't know the difference that those people are making. We don't know the difference that you're making. Listen, it could be as something as simple and as fundamental as like, hey, I feel like I'm called to start discipling my kids. Let me just be a spoiler to you. You are called. You are commanded to be the one discipling your kids. And we just think, well, I don't know what to do. Listen, you don't know what God's going to do through your kids. You don't know what what plans God has for your kids that you get to play a part in investing and raising them up and how they might change the world, how they might be the next Elliot, 
that we celebrate as missionaries. They might be the next Billy Graham. They might be the next fill-in-the-blank. There might be a kid in an orphanage somewhere that God has huge plans to change the world, and maybe you're called to be one that, that goes and brings that child home, and maybe you're just called to come alongside and love on and pursue and be kind and generous to the families that do in our church. Like, we don't know what God is going to do in these moments. We don't know. We all love the stories of redemption, of the, the addict coming out of that lifestyle and walking into a new life and, and sobriety. We, we love those stories, right? We want to be a part of those stories. Like, we don't know how God wants to use you to just be a friend to that addict. We don't know how God wants to use you to just invite them into your home, right? We don't know what God's going to do when we say yes. We don't have to have all the plans figured out. We can just say, okay, I'm in. We start fasting and praying and say, Lord, I don't know what I got. I don't see how my life connects to your mission, but, but show me. Show me, and he'll start to show you how you've got things like Esther had, and you can leverage them, and you can use them for his glory. What would it, man, church, as we close, what if? What if God's people took this seriously, and we stopped becoming a people who just come to church once a week and maybe go to a group, and then, you know, we just kind of, what if we started, like, living our lives on purpose, and we went to work with a purpose? There's a great article, if you go to your app, and this weekend, there's a great article I would encourage all of you to read about how God wants to use the ordinary parts of our life for his glory. I would encourage all of you to, to read it this evening and this week and, and revisit it and really let it read you, right? Let it examine your own life. What if we did that, church? What would God do in and through us? How would he transform our church? How would he transform Southern Illinois? Right? And then history. There's going to be this moment when we get to heaven and we're going to see the grand tapestry that God has been weaving together. And we're going to go, oh, oh. That's why I got that phone call that day. That's why I ran into that person. That's why I had to suffer with cancer. That's why I lost that child. That's why I did this. That's what God was doing. That's how he was writing that story from brokenness into redemption. He's going to do that. We know how it ends. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered around his throne, worshiping him as Savior. Story after story after story of brokenness redeemed. Past to future and right now, your neighbors, your coworkers, your kids, your kids' friends, your kids' parents, your kids' friends' parents, on and on and on. Story after story is going to be told at the feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb and His church one day. The question is, do we want like do we want to be a part of it? We want like God's going to get His glory. He's going to accomplish His purposes. We know that. You can take that to the bank. Do you want to play your role, or do you want him to do it in spite of you? It is Again, it is not too dramatic to say that literally you are where you are with the story that you have for such a time as this. Will you lean into that with me? Will you commit to fasting and praying and asking the Lord, how, how would you use me? What would you have me do? 
We've got spots. You can, we, we, we've got ideas, right? Like you can, we can find you a place to serve some families, you know, through the Restore Network. We, we've got some addicts that are meeting with people in our church that are trying to get clean. They would love to have a mentor. We've got kids in our community that would say, I'd love to have somebody hang out with me. Like we need you guys to start saying yes, and we'll get you trained and send you out. Like would you, would you lean into those kinds of questions? Would you begin to I, – like I, I get calls and emails weekly about opportunities throughout the – the, the area of how to serve and what, to, like, there's, it's out there. We'll help you get plugged in. Maybe it's signing up to, you know, join the worship team. Maybe it's to lead a community group. Maybe it's just to start going to a community group. But will you lean into what does the Lord have for you right now in this moment for such a time as this? Let's pray. Jesus, we get so short-sighted and so just unconcerned about what you're doing in the world and we get caught up in our own life and we need you to sober us out of that. We need you to help us see the grand narrative of what you're doing. So would your spirit fall on each of us and make that personal and make that real this morning and give us the faith to respond with courage and with surrender. And Lord, would you use us? Would you use us? People of the journey SI? Not for our glory, not for our namesake, for yours. We want to be a part of what you're doing, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.